0: Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciated Alan's prayer for workers. You may not know this, but Labor Day was instituted toward the end of the 19th century by the labor movement, at their influence, that the government set it aside as a day to honor American workers. So, if you're an American worker, you're being honored this weekend, and that's great. Through the years, as a lead pastor or a staff pastor, I haven't always preached on Labor Day weekend, uh, as I just alluded to. It's not the weekend everybody's just leaping and you know to, don't want to preach that weekend, but. Uh, for the, many of the weekends that I have preached on Labor Day weekend, I've talked about the topic of labor. How do you connect your faith and your work? Because it's a, a huge, huge need in our lives. Well, I'm not going to do that today, okay? And I'm not going to do it for a couple of reasons. One is that in the last number of years, we've had a number of sermon series on this topic and on this theme, and you're gonna see on the screen a reminder of some of those that have, that have come your way in the past few years. In 2013, our teaching team did a series called What Do You Work For? Your Place in a Larger Story. Back in 2009, when Matt Bauer was here, we did a series called Restoration Hardware. In 2014, a series simply called Calling, uh, your calling, including your calling of work. Uh, In 2011, we did a series called Shalom, bringing shalom, the flourishing of our cities, in part through our work. And then in 2009, 2010, we did a series called Vocation, The Christian Goes to Work. So if I understand correctly, if you go to the link for this message today, when it's put online, you will find a link to these messages uh, if you want to get them online as well. Uh, Or you can find instructions there about how to pick up the old version, CD version. Let me also mention to you that there's a new ministry of our church called Terminus Collective. I don't know if you know this, but Terminus was the first name for the city of Atlanta. Then it was called Marthasville, and then it was called Atlanta. And we have a new ministry of our church that's in, this intended to connect faith and work, to help people understand their work in an orientation of faith. Travis Vaughn heads up that ministry, and you can find out more about it by going to terminuscollective.org. So I would really encourage you to look at that. Travis is doing a great job, and it's a great ministry. Today, uh, our message is going to connect with, but not officially be a part of, the series that Randy is in right now. The series that Randy's been preaching from the story of the prodigal son and the older son, it's a fantastic series. If you've missed any of it, get the messages that you've missed and be here for the next few weeks as he completes the series. It's been fantastic. It's about how we are totally changed by the love of a heavenly father. That being reconciled to God comes through the love and the grace of a heavenly father who sends the elder son, and in our story, the elder son comes and finds us and brings us back. Now, as Randy said, I think in Sermon 2 or 3 of this series, his series is about justification. That's a big, fancy theological word. What is it? The doctrine of justification is the doctrine of our being declared not guilty, in fact, being declared righteous in the sight of God. It's how we begin the Christian life. The Holy Spirit comes to us. He gives us a new heart, and then we put our faith in Christ. And here's the idea of justification. It's like Jesus had a moral account that was perfect, but God attributed to the account of Jesus, so to speak. The idea of imputation is is an accounting term. He imputes to Jesus' account all of our sin. And then on the cross, Jesus pays our debt, so that our sin is wiped away. But not only that, when we put our faith in Jesus, God takes all the positive righteousness of Jesus, and he imputes that righteousness to our account so that God sees us as perfectly righteous as Jesus is. And this all comes from the love and grace of our Father. That's what Randy's series is about. Today's message is about what comes next. After experiencing this justification, being born again, being declared righteous in the sight of God, what comes next? What comes next is a process that starts at our conversion and continues until we die or until Jesus returns again, and it is called sanctification. The word sanctification is at the heart of the word holiness. It is our progress in holiness, it is our overcoming the power of sin. We might say, that justification is being set free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is being set free from the power of sin. Now, don't let me confuse you. We always need to reaffirm our justification every day. Every day to believe with all of our heart that we have been declared righteous in the sight of God by faith alone, by grace alone, through the work of Christ alone. That is always the bedrock of our experience every day. But the heart of our message is simply this today that the grace of God not only brings to us us imputed righteousness, it is the grace of God that brings to us progressive, experiential holiness. Holiness. Our being set free from the power of sin is a work of God's grace. Now, let me admit to you right away, I'm using a word that's really a bad word in our culture, and that's the word holiness, right? There are probably few words in our culture that have more of a negative connotation than holiness. I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes, but let me just say this right now. This is a very important series for every one of us to hear for this reason. Every one of us in this room has a desire to break free from something that is enslaving us, a habit, an attitude, a posture of our heart, something that we wish we could break free from, but we just can't seem to do it. Maybe bitterness has overcome your heart. You know you need to forgive certain people. You just can't find it in your heart to forgive them. And bitterness is eating you alive from the inside out. Maybe you're addicted to pornography, as so many people are in our culture, or to illicit sex, or to alcohol, or to drugs, or some other substance. Maybe you're addicted to religious deeds. Maybe you're addicted to the approval of certain people. Maybe you're addicted to your work, so much so that your family is being torn apart by your business success. I don't know what it is that you wrestle against, but whatever it is, this message is for you, and this message is for me, because I'm right in that battle with you as well. Let me give you a preview of where we're going today. We're gonna read the passage that this message is based upon, then we're gonna back up and look at that passage just verse by verse and make some observations And then we're finally going to turn to the outline that you'll find in your points to remember and you'll see it on this back screen. And just in about the last 15 minutes of the sermon, we'll look at this outline and analyze all of uh, this teaching of this passage about holiness by grace. But let's start right now with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask you now that you would come be our teacher. There's certainly no power In the one who stands on this stage. But there is power in your word, we believe, and there's power in the grace of Jesus, and there's power in his Holy Spirit, and we believe that Jesus is here today. So come, Lord, and be with us, and speak to our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. The title of this message, as you're gonna see it on the screen, is this, Grace Plus Jesus Yields Holiness. Now, I know that because that looks like a chemistry equation, this is a bad sermon for a lot of us right off the bat, right? If you didn't didn't like chemistry, maybe even forgot that that's what that means, that little arrow. But here's the idea of today's message, that grace plus Jesus yields holiness. It's about a grace-driven transformation of our lives, and it comes from this passage. Please stand as we read Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14, I'll be reading from the... New International Version. Paul says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Thank you. Please be seated. Now let me give you a little bit of the context of this passage. This is part of a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is writing to a younger minister that he is training and he is supervising, and that younger minister's name is Titus. Titus has been sent to the island of Crete. Crete is in the Mediterranean Ocean, south of Greece and south of Turkey. And the job that Titus has been sent there to do is to share the gospel with the people of Crete and disciple the people of Crete and eventually raise up elders and deacons and leaders of the church of Crete. And here's the deal. This was a very tough job because the Cretans were very rough people. In this book, the apostle Paul is describing the kind of moral character followers of Jesus should have, and especially the leaders of the church that they should have. And in the middle of that, in in chapter 1 of Titus, uh, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, Timothy, even one of the prophets of Crete that is not a Christian at all, but just one of the religious leaders of Crete, of some other kind of religion, even one of the prophets of Crete has said, all Cretans are lazy liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And in what I think is one of the funniest verses of the Bible, the Apostle Paul says, this testimony is true. (laughs) So he basically says to Titus, yep, that's what they're like. You're going to place, and they're all liars, and they're evil brutes, and they're lazy gluttons. So with that kind of a group of people who are sort of at the bottom of the rung morally in the Mediterranean world perhaps, He says, your job is to preach and teach God's law. They need to know the kind of character they are to have as followers of Jesus. And you are to preach the grace and love of God. And so to speak, he says to Titus, there are two errors you must avoid, two dangers of how people can get this wrong. One is to believe that their forgiveness comes by grace, but the transformation of their character and heart comes by their self-effort. That is an error to avoid. The other error to avoid, the other danger is to believe that if I'm forgiven and given a a ticket to heaven by grace, then I can continue to be a liar, an evil brute, and a lazy glutton. I can continue just to live any way that I want to live. And so in this book, the apostle Paul says, no, 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 grace will change you. The grace that brings you forgiveness will also bring you transformation. Let's look at this passage verse by verse and just make some observations. Look at verse 11, please. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, if we could see this in the Greek, it's really written this way. For appeared the grace of God to all men. Appeared the grace It's the word epiphany you know what an epiphany is? We would use the word that something is an epiphany. If it just sort of shows up, boom, it appears out of nowhere. If an angel were to appear to you in the middle of the night, it would be an epiphany, boom. And so he says here in a very dramatic way, appeared the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. Now, what does he mean by all men? Does he mean that every single person who's ever lived will be saved? No, he means all kinds of people. In other words, the grace of God has come not only for the Jews, who have supposedly been trying to be moral good people for centuries, and they've had the law of God. No, the grace of God has appeared for Gentiles. In fact, the grace of God has appeared for even Cretans. Nobody is beyond the grace of God, nobody at all. Look at verse 12. He says, the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The word teach here, we're going to come back to later in the message, but it comes from the same root word as the word child. Some interesting observations from that. But basically in this verse, Paul is saying, grace does not teach us license or licentiousness. Grace teaches us holiness. And Then let's look at verses 13 and 14 together. He says it teaches us to say no to certain things and yes to other things while we wait for the blessed hope, that is, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, what? From all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, I want you to notice here how Jesus centered the grace of God is. Grace is not something that just comes to us from nowhere. Our culture now is a culture that loves the idea of the grace and love of God, but is going further and further away from seeing that grace connected to Jesus. The message of Christianity is that the grace of God doesn't come from nowhere, it comes from Jesus. It comes from what he did for us in his first appearing, his holy life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection. And it will someday culminate in his second appearing when everything he has died to reclaim and remake will totally be remade. Now with that as a very sort of long introduction, let's take about the last 15 minutes and look at this outline right here. You'll see it on the back screen as well as we analyze the teaching of this passage. Two questions by way of introduction. First of all, what is holiness? What is holiness? Isn't it true what I said a few minutes ago There are probably very few words that have more of a negative connotation in our culture than the word holiness. It makes you think immediately of someone who is holier than thou, someone who is self-righteous, out of touch, uncool, nerdy, right? Nobody wants to be holy. But I don't want you to think of it that way at all. I want you to think of holiness as this, the freedom to be what you were designed to be. That's holiness the freedom to be what God made you to be, the freedom, in a sense, to be truly human. Once you look at the screen, you're going to see a video that will explain what holiness is, and another short video that will show you what sin or unholiness is. Give your attention to the screen. Now, I'll explain in a moment. I know you're confused, okay? But that's a picture of holiness. And this next little video is a picture of unholiness or sin. You see, when a saw is sawing wood, that's holiness. It was made to saw wood. When a saw is being used like a hammer, that's unholiness. That's sin. You see, the revealed will of God in the Bible, the revealed will of God in his law, teaches us what we were made for and how we were made to live. How we relate to God and to ourselves and to one another and to all of creation. That's what holiness is. And in fact, those things that bring destruction to us and that damage our lives, those things that we're not living the way we were made to live, that's unholiness, that's sin. That's what holiness is. Secondly, why is holiness so important? Well, two reasons. First, as I've already said, it's, it's what we were made for. It's how we were designed. But number two is this. The Bible says that holiness is the characteristic and fruitfulness of experiencing grace. How will I know if this saving grace has come to me? The Bible says that the result will be my life will be changed and I'll begin to embrace a life of holiness. Now, hear me well. Holiness will not be completely mine. It will not be entirely mine. There will be a ton of sin in my life until, until Jesus comes back again or until I die to go be with him in heaven. But the truth of them, and, and the and the odd thing about it is that the, actually the closer I get to Jesus, the less holy I will feel. It's one of the, the strange things, the ironies of holiness, that the most, more holy you are, the less holy you will feel, the more aware of your sin you will be. And you'll be burdened by that. But the Bible says very truly that a characteristic of of conversion is that we will yearn for holiness. We will seek holiness. We will make efforts toward holiness. There's a very odd story in the New Testament where Jesus comes upon a fig tree as he's going toward Jerusalem, but the fig tree has no figs on it, so he curses it. Now, it seems rather harsh, but he was giving a lesson to his followers, and that is fig trees are supposed to bear figs and yet Israel was not bearing the fruit of holiness. And so the Bible says to us, Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit. And if you're truly a follower of Jesus, the fruit may be faint and the fruit may be weak, but it will be there. Holiness will be produced. Now, three observations today about this grace of God that we find in the gospel. But first, let's redefine the gospel. We want to do this over and over again. At the screen, you'll see the definition. Let me read it for you. It says, the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Jesus. Would you read that aloud with me, please? The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Jesus. As a preacher, I might fantasize that many in our church would memorize that, you know? That'd be a great thing to memorize. There's what the gospel is. Now today, three observations very quickly about what the gospel, what the grace of God in the gospel does in our lives. First of all is this. The grace of God in the gospel teaches us to be holy. It teaches us to be holy. Now you might be thinking to yourself, Bob, I thought it was the law of God that taught me to be holy. No. The law of God teaches us what holiness is. The law of God makes us aware of our sin. The law of God tells us the road that we should be on, but the law of God is powerless to train us to walk us down that road. The law of God defines holiness, but it doesn't train us for holiness. The training for holiness comes through the grace of God. This word here, as I've mentioned about teaching, is the word paideia. There is down in Atlanta a school that some of you may be familiar with called the Paideia School. The word Paideia means child. And the word Paideia means to teach in a way that you would teach a child, so to speak. Now think about what you teach a child and how you teach children. When you teach children, especially small children, you don't just teach knowledge. You have to teach character. You have to teach behavior. You have to teach them how to relate to one another. It's very holistic teaching. And think about how you have to teach a child you have to teach a child patiently but persistently. And yet patiently, the child is gonna mess up and blow it again and again and again and again. The child may at times feel like quitting and you have to encourage the child that yes, you can learn this. And it's with that kind of gracious, patient, kind, yet persistent teaching that the grace of God comes to us and it teaches us to embrace holiness but it does indeed teach us. It makes a difference. A book I'll highly recommend to you is by Dr. Brian Chappell. It's called Holiness by Grace, and this is what Dr. Chappell has said. He said, grace is not a universal solvent to wash away God's standards. Understanding the character of the God who lovingly pardons us, teaches us to say no to what denies him and damages us. That's well said. The grace of God teaches us to be holy. Number two here today, the grace of God found in the gospel empowers us to be holy. It empowers us to be holy. Now, I want you to know something, that one of the reasons I'm so impassioned to preach upon on this topic, and the reason it comes up from time to time in my preaching is simply this. For years, I missed this. I was brought up in a church that taught salvation by grace alone and faith alone and Jesus alone, and I was converted and trusted Jesus when I was still a small kid. But somewhere along the line, I got the idea as a child that though I was forgiven by grace, it was up to me and my self-effort to, to obey God and to embrace holiness. Well, somewhere along the line in my middle school and high school years, I was introduced to the teaching of how to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in order to be obedient. And I'm very glad that I was. However, when I was taught about that topic, I was never taught how the fullness of the Holy Spirit connects with Christ and the cross and our union with Christ and the grace of God and so for years fact frankly even as a pastor I tended to think of things this way that in the beginning of the Christian experience we are forgiven and that is the work of the cross and the work of Christ and the work of grace and then we move on from those things and the way we grow in our Christian life is through the Holy Spirit and through the law. That was the way I tended to think of it. That is absolutely not true. The Holy Spirit is involved in our conversions. He is the one that shows us our need for Christ. The law is involved in our conversions. It's through knowing the law that we know we need a savior. But likewise, imagine the freedom I began to feel. Imagine how I had a new power to overcome sin when I understood that the fullness of the Holy Spirit and that the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness comes through the cross and it comes through Jesus and it comes by grace and it comes by faith. This came crashing home for me and for for Margaret Ann in the mid-90s. I'd been a pastor for about 10 years. I was pastoring in-town community church one of the elders came to us and said, Bob, uh, I work with Mission to the World, as you know, and we are now sending all of our missionaries for a, for a training that I think you would find refreshing and encouraging and helpful, and we'll keep your kids, and it's five days in the North Carolina mountains. So we said, we're signed on, we're going. We got there, and the teaching and training was totally from the book of Galatians. Now, here's the interesting part of this, this story is that that previous year, I had done a read through the Bible in a year program, but when I got to Galatians, I skipped it. And you know the reason I skipped Galatians? I thought to myself, Galatians is about justification by faith. I've got that, I don't need the book of Galatians. And I get to this conference and they remind me very vividly that the book of Galatians is not only about justification by grace and faith, it's about sanctification by grace and faith. The real take-home moment for me was about two or three days into the conference when Margaret Ann turned to me and said, is what they are teaching correct? And I said, yeah, it's correct. And she said, I've never heard this before. Now, I want to tell you, not only had I been her husband for 10 years, I'd been her preacher for 10 years. She said, I haven't heard this before. And I realized, I need to understand this more deeply, and I need to teach this more centrally. It is the grace of God that empowers us for holiness. Now, what are some verses that would support this claim? First, look, first of all, or, or at the screen to Romans 1.16. This is the verse of the book of Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now, what does he mean by salvation? Well, he means not only justification that he talks about in chapters 3, 4, and 5, He means sanctification that he talks about in chapters 6, 7, and 8, and glorification that he talks about in chapters 8 and 9. It is the gospel that is the power of God for justification, and it is the gospel that is the power of God for sanctification, and eventually what is called glorification, when we are separated, there is no sin in us and no sin around us, and we are in the new heavens in the new earth. All is by the grace of God. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved, that's justification, looking back, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are present, sanctification, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God himself has prepared in advance for us. I recently heard another PCA minister preach on this passage, and he made two points. He said, it is God who does all the work, and even our work is a part of his work. That's a beautiful way to look at it. In our fight against sin, in justification, we do nothing at all. It is simply declared to us that we are righteous. In our sanctification, we have effort. We fight against sin. We fight to say yes to holiness. We discipline ourselves. But what this passage says is, it is all God's work. And even our work is a work of God in us and through us. That's also what Paul says in Philippians 2. Last verse to look at here. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. Not work for it, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling for what? It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. You work it out, but it's God working in you and it's God working through you. It's a work of grace, and it's a work that is sparked by faith. It is the grace of God that teaches us to be holy. It is the grace of God that empowers us to be holy. And number three here, finally, in conclusion, it is the grace of God that motivates us to be holy. The grace of God that motivates us. You know, in religion and in marriage, motives matter, right? Why you do what you do is just as important as what you do. That's true in marriage is true in Christianity. What's the motive for your obedience? Charles Spurgeon, I think the greatest preacher of the 19th century in Britain said this, that the obedience of the Christian is like being drawn with the cords of sweet love, not being, like being whipped and driven with the law. And that is the truth of it. Our obedience is being drawn with the cords of, the, of gospel love, not being whipped and beaten with the threats of the law. Our motive is not fear, Our motive is not pride. Our motive is not reputation. Our motive is that we have been so dearly loved that we love our Savior in return, and therefore, we want Him to be honored. Notice in this passage how grace-centered, gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, our holiness is. He says in verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we look forward to him coming back again. We look forward to seeing him with our own eyes. And then we not only look forward to his return, we look back to his first appearing. And we, he says this in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He died not only to make us forgiven, he died to make us holy. And so this is a Jesus-centered holiness. The cross teaches us to be holy. The cross empowers us to be holy. The cross motivates us to be holy. Now, let me conclude this message. And I want to conclude it by saying something that I think probably reflects where you are right now because it's where I've been all week while I've been working on this message. All of this talk about holiness and obedience makes me very, very hyper aware of my disobedience and my lack of holiness. All week long as I've prepared this message, that's what has been on my mind. But I am not as holy as I should be as I want to be. There is so much disobedience in my life. Then you need to know if that's where you are, and if you're an honest person, that is where you are, you need to know that the central thing of our sanctification, the most important aspect of our sanctification, is embracing and understanding our weakness every day. Coming every single day with your weakness and with your failings. Never moving away from your justification by grace alone. Always believing that you are declared righteous by grace alone and faith alone. And even in the midst of that, continuing every day to say, Lord, I fail. I fail, I fail, and never giving up that pattern of confession, because that, my friends, is the hallmark of holiness. That is the hallmark of grace in our lives. I can't recommend everything that's been written by Dr. Leslie Newbigin, a missionary to India, but in his book, The The Good Shepherd, about ministry, this is what he said, and I agree with it 100%. He says, I know that I have myself failed over and over again, that I am a moral and spiritual weakling. But here also it is true that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. The church is not an organization of spiritual giants. It is broken men and women who can lead others to the cross. For what is the work of the ministry if it is not to lead others in following Jesus on the way to the cross? Amen. There's a hymn that I go to over and over again I go to this hymn when I have failed, and I go to this hymn when I need the power of the cross to obey. And Here are the words of the hymn, you'll see it on the screen. When I survey, that is when I look over, when I really study and consider the wondrous cross on which Jesus, the Prince of Glory, died, my richest gain, I count that richest gain, whatever it is in my life, I count it a loss and I pour contempt on all my foolish pride that leads me to sin. Please forbid it, Lord, that I would boast in anything except the death of Christ. All the vain, empty things that would charm me the most, I sacrifice those things. I lay them down before his blood. Look, see, from his head, his hands, his feet, from all the places that he bled, There was sorrow and love mingled together, and his blood was like sorrow and love flowing down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet together? Did ever thorns compose such a beautiful crown? Were the whole realm of nature not mine? If the universe belonged to me, that would be a present far too small. No, love this amazing, love so divine, this love demands my soul my life, my all. My friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the motivation for our obedience. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the only hope in the face of all of our disobedience. Praise God for the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your grace so deeply and desperately. And so Lord, today we praise you and thank you for a grace that brings to us every single day no matter how often we sin, a declaration that we are righteous, that we are declared to be as righteous as Jesus is by faith alone. And upon that standing, we come again and again every day to the throne of grace. And we come there with our temptations and our weaknesses. And Lord, every day, oh Lord, we thank you that you don't get tired of hearing us say, I am weak, I am tempted, come help me. Thank you for that kind of grace. And so today, Lord, we want to tell you that because you've loved us, we want our lives to reflect the beauty of your holiness. May we love your law, may we love your will, because you've loved us so deeply. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia.